of this podcast. I wanted to initially play it earlier on in the show and did not uh, do that. So we're going to continue playing it. If you're listening right now, usually or half the time women's magazine with global Val is up at 2 PM and then common thread collective with global Val and diamond Dave is up at three. They're taking every other week off. So we've got the studio here. So I'm going to continue playing this. If you're listening online and it cuts off, please do check out women's magazine from today, December 7th as the recorded podcasts are all available in the archive. So if you'd like to go out, go and listen to previous podcasts you can check out the archives there and it's sorted by show so again if you're listening to this in the future and this cuts off from the weekly review please check out women's magazine from december 7th and you'll find a continuation of this podcast and please do uh, stay tuned thanks when you say your conscience is clear do you mean that the interpretation that has been made of the documents in this trial which i gather were made by mr north himself are not entirely accurate. I'm not discussing anything about my role in this, except to say that everything I've said, I'll stand behind. You won't even be, since they're sequestered, uh, just I've just told the gentleman that I'm not going to uh, go into that, so please don't ask me to do that, which I've just said I'm not going to do, because you're burning up time. The meter is running. You look at how the issue of Trump and potential pardons of people like Paul Manafort or others, and what they're accused of versus all of these people that were pardoned by the man now being hero worshipped by every major Democrat, Republican, etc. And there's no mention of the fact that we're talking about people who were engaged in illicit arms smuggling, narco trafficking with supporting death squads, including death squads that murder American citizens. You also, uh, I think it's important to point this historical fact out, during the Iran-Contra investigations, Dick Cheney was a congressman from Wyoming, and he, in fact, was one of the lead authors of the dissenting report on the Iran-Contra investigation, and in fact, in his report, said that this was actually a model for how the U.S. should do its foreign policy, not uh, some aberration or scandal. And then you have Cheney going on to be W's vice president. And you then see the same kind of death squad activity that became known in Iraq as the Salvador option and included people like Colonel James Steele and other uh, U.S. paramilitary figures that were deeply involved with creating death squads in Central America, then doing it again in Iraq under George H.W. Bush's son's time in office with Dick Cheney, who was the main defense point on Iran-Contra for the Bush-Reagan White House. It's this whole continuity, you know, for, from the Phoenix program to Operation Condor to the Central American Dirty Wars to the death squads in Iraq. And you have all these uh, Bush senior figures who are running the war, right? Dick Cheney's vice president, Donald Rumsfeld, is uh, secretary of defense. James Baker is the lawyer that comes in to ensure that the Supreme Court picks the right person in 2000 and George W. Bush is named president. Right. And, you know, one of those votes is Clarence Thomas, basically this joke of a jurist who uh, George Bush picked to replace the giant uh, Thurgood Marshall. So you just have this constant corruption that's going on with the Bush family. And, and now they've been completely rehabilitated because they're not as crude or cartoonish as Donald Trump. You had this incident that happened on July 3rd, 1988, when the U.S. shot down an Iranian right. civilian airliner, killing 290-odd passengers, among them more than 60 
children. We believe that the cruiser USS Vincennes, while actively engaged with threatening Iranian surface units and protecting itself from what was concluded to be a hostile aircraft, shot down an Iranian airliner over the Straits of Hormuz. The U.S. government deeply regrets this incident. George H.W. Bush said the following in response to that shooting. I'll never apologize for the United States of America, ever. I don't care what the facts are. Yeah, that that was just a complete atrocity. You know, this is the war of the oil platforms that's going on in the Persian Gulf, where U.S. Uh, special forces are blowing up Iranian oil platforms uh, to help Iraq in its uh, war against Iran. And the USS Vincennes is essentially parked right under commercial air traffic in the Persian Gulf, and it shoots it down. And we, we've never heard the real story was, what was going on there. But we know that may have been like a direct warning uh, to the Iranians that the, the U.S. was going to keep getting more involved in the war if, if they didn't finally uh, reach uh, some sort of uh, agreement with Saddam Hussein, who is being protected by the U.S. We also haven't even gotten into the BCCI and BNL scandals. These were these huge banking scandals in the 1980 where billions of dollars were funneled in secret uh, government credit from various agencies through these banks to Saddam Hussein over $5 billion that allowed him to buy all this dual-use technology, including the weapons and equipments to gas 5,000 Kurds at Halabja in 1988. And the Reagan administration completely covered for and defended Saddam Hussein. Well, even, even more than that, Arun, from 1980 to 1988, we're talking about Bush's in almost his entire duration as vice president under Reagan, the United States was supporting both Iran and Iraq militarily, intelligence-wise, but clearly wanted Iraq to prevail in a decimation of both societies because Bush, Reagan, the CIA viewed Saddam as a secular, murderous thug who could be used to implement the U.S. agenda in the region and far more preferential to the Islamic revolution in neighboring Iran. Exactly. And we see the same story in Panama as well, where, where George Bush uh, turns on his one-time buddy, uh, Manuel Noriega, 1989, invading Panama and basically destroying this working class neighborhood in Panama, where Panamanian uh, Defense Forces' uh, main building was, killing thousands. Um, they created a mass grave, but this, of course, ends up paling in comparison to what happens in the Iraq War with the destruction of Iraq's civilian infrastructure. And by the end of 1992, a U.S. government official estimated something like 200,000 Iraqis died, both directly from the war and as a result of the devastation of the civilian infrastructure, the electricity, the sanitation, clean water. So these are just not enormous crimes. They also set the stage for the chaotic world we see today. The Central American wars are exactly why we see these refugees are fleeing their countries by droves because we have destroyed these societies and people are just desperate to flee the violence and poverty because we would not let them have some sort of modicum of justice and dignity. How should honest people 
people who care about history, context, and facts remember George Herbert Walker Bush? George Herbert Walker Bush, in some way, is kind of this Nixonian figure on the political landscape because there was some progressive legislation that did pass, but it was part of this much broader, heinous domestic policy, stuff like Willie Horton, the complete hostility towards uh, the AIDS crisis and tens of thousands of gay men who were dying because of it. And it's wrapped in creating this chaotic world. And I think ultimately, George Herbert Walker Bush needs to be remembered as a Dr. Frankenstein. He created the world. He was one of the primary architects of this world that gave us Donald Trump. Arun Gupta, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. Arun Gupta is an investigative reporter whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, the Guardian, and the Intercept, as well as other publications. In addition to his journalism, Arun happens to be a graduate of the French Culinary Institute, and he's working on his first book, Bacon as a Weapon of Mass Destruction, a junk food loving chef's inquiry into taste. You can follow Arun on Twitter at Arun Indy and support his work at Patreon, where he is Arun Gupta reporter. I began my life in journalism by begging my way into an unpaid apprenticeship with Amy Goodman, the host of Democracy Now! It was during the 1990s and Bill Clinton was president. Saddam Hussein was firmly entrenched in power as the dictator of Iraq, and that country was suffering in an unimaginable way. The 1991 Gulf War launched by President Bush had decimated Iraq's civilian infrastructure. A modern Middle East nation had been bombed back decades. Water and sewage treatment facilities had been attacked systematically. Cancer rates were skyrocketing, and hospitals could not import basic medicines, analgesics, cancer treatments. That's because Bush followed up his destruction of Iraq by imposing what would become the most sweeping economic sanctions in history. What that meant is that Iraq's civilian infrastructure was obliterated during the bombing and the war, and then it was prohibited from rebuilding the country or even offering the most basic medical care. When Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush and won the presidency in 1992, one of his first acts as president was to bomb Iraq. And the justification for that bombing was an alleged plot by Saddam Hussein to assassinate Bush on a visit to Kuwait. That turned out to be totally false. But Bill Clinton's bombing killed several Iraqi civilians, including the famed painter Leila al-Attar, Throughout the Clinton years, Iraq was bombed on average once every three days under the guise of the so-called no-fly zones. And it was in this period that I began traveling to Iraq as a young reporter, and many of the stories I did focused on the ongoing death toll and suffering caused by Bush's war and the economic weapon of sanctions. One-and-a-half-year-old Hamoudi Abbas is going to die, maybe in a week, maybe in a month, maybe in a year. But his doctor says he won't see a third birthday. Hamoudi was just diagnosed with lymphoma, cancer of the lymph nodes. His face is severely disfigured by a large softball-sized tumor that presses against his left eye. He wears a bib around his neck that says, I love my mommy. The bib is covered in the blood that Hamoudi has been coughing up. 
His doctor, Mohammed Kamal, says that with adequate drugs, Hamoudi would have a solid chance of beating the cancer. But he says that because of shortages caused by the U.S.-led sanctions, the necessary drugs are simply not available. Within a week, some of them, within a month, some of them, even a year, but will die sooner or later. Hamoudi is one of the thousands of children in southern Iraq that have fallen victim to the cancer epidemic that has plagued the region since the end of the 1991 Gulf War. Reporting from Iraq's hospitals felt to me like reporting from death rows for infants. Doctors would tell you that they knew how to treat their patients, but they didn't have the supplies or the medications necessary to do so. Syringes were being reused. Tylenol was banned. Bleach was banned. Equipment for x-ray machines was banned. I saw children born with congenital birth defects that did not exist in modern medical journals. The U.S. strategy was to starve, kill, torture Iraqis into rising up against Saddam Hussein. And I saw with my own eyes how U.S. policy made Saddam stronger and how it forced Iraqis that may have organized their own version of an Arab Spring uprising to spend every ounce of their human energy on simply surviving. Iraq is why I ultimately became a reporter. I'm still haunted by the memories of the dead I saw there, particularly the children. In Iraq, I spent a lot of time with the U.S. peace activist Kathy Kelly, the co-founder of the group Voices in the Wilderness. She went to Iraq during the 91 Gulf War and camped out in the desert in protest of that war. She spent extensive time in Baghdad as the missiles rained down. And then throughout the 1990s, Kathy lived for long periods in Iraq over the years, organizing against the sanctions and the bombings implemented by Bush and continued by Clinton. I mean, I really believe that the strategy was to say to every other country in the region, maybe in the world, if you do not subordinate yourselves to fill our national interest, to serve our national interest, we can eliminate you. And if you don't believe it, look at Saddam Hussein, look at Iraq. As we watch the coverage on corporate television of George H.W. Bush, the focus when it comes to Iraq is how Bush built this coalition of willing nations to force Saddam to withdraw from Kuwait. There's no mention of how the U.S. was arming Saddam for a decade prior to that, helping him identify targets to bomb in Iran. No mention of how Bush encouraged Iraqis to rise up and then gave Saddam the green light to slaughter those who had risen against him. There's another way for the bloodshed to stop, and that is for the Iraqi military and the Iraqi people to take matters into their own hands, to force Saddam Hussein, the dictator, to step aside. There's scant mention of the role that the U.S. played in fueling and arming the Iran-Iraq war that preceded the invasion of Kuwait. There's no mention of how the CIA cultivated and supported Saddam in his rise to power. There's no talk of how the U.S. ambassador told Saddam before the invasion of Kuwait that the U.S. didn't have a position on Arab-Arab disputes. None of this. It's as though history exists in a vacuum that will allow nothing in except the sanitized U.S. empire narrative. To truly understand the massive scale of the crimes that George H.W. Bush committed in Iraq, we must look at the 1991 Gulf War and all the civilian targets the U.S. intentionally bombed. But we must also look at Bush's role in supporting Saddam right up until the eve of that war. We have to talk about Saddam and his CIA friends. We have to talk about the sanctions that lived on for more than a decade after Bush left office and continued to kill innocent people. 
And we have to talk about the horrors in Iraq today and how they can all be traced to the legacy that George H.W. Bush built. It became, I think, such a, a, a difficult setting in which to live that people actually would say, if there is a light at the tunnel, it's probably only a train coming to run us over. And that ended up being sort of true. And I, thinking of all that in relation to the formation of jihadist groups, we, sh you know, we really shouldn't be surprised. I mean, I sometimes think of even a tiny fraction of what Iraqis were afflicted with in terms of war and sanctions and indignities and um, displacement, refugees, separation of families, all the, I suppose, collateral, collateral consequences of war had happened here in the United States. Do we think there might be vigilante groups that might form up and might become violent and say, if we get guns, we're going to shoot the people that we think? So, I mean, it, 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 we're just over and over again in Syria and now in Yemen creating the likelihood of groups like ISIS, like al-Qaeda. And, and U.S. people are so undereducated about those connections. That again was Kathy Kelly of Voices in the Wilderness. Well, joining me now is the celebrated Iraqi poet, scholar, novelist, Sinan Antoun. He is an associate professor at New York University in the Gallatin School of Individualized Study. Sinan was born and raised in Baghdad, where he finished his bachelor's in English at Baghdad University in 1990. He left Iraq and came to the United States after the 1991 Gulf War, where he was educated at Georgetown and Harvard, obtaining a doctorate in Arabic literature in 2006. Sinan's books have been widely published in Arabic and other languages. Among those available in English are his poetry collection, The Baghdad Blues, his novel, Ijam, an Iraqi Rhapsody, and most recently, his novel, The Corpse Washer. He also made a powerful documentary about his return to Baghdad after the U.S. invasion in 2003. It's called About Baghdad. Back in March, Sinan Antoun published an op-ed in the New York Times on the anniversary of the invasion of Iraq by Bush's son. That article was titled, 15 Years Ago, America Destroyed My Country. Sinan Antoun, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me. First, I want to just get your immediate eulogy of sorts to George H.W. Bush. How do you remember him? How should history remember him? Well, uh, history should remember him as a war criminal because that is what he is. For me personally, having gone through the experience of being in a shelter in Baghdad in 1991 and having watched how Bush's war destroyed Iraq. I mean, of course, the declared uh, objective was to liberate Kuwait, which many Iraqis were fine by because they were against the occupation of Kuwait. Our objectives are clear. Saddam Hussein's forces will leave Kuwait. The legitimate government of Kuwait will be restored to its rightful place. And Kuwait will once again be free. But liberating Kuwait did not require the, what James Baker said, bombing back to the pre-industrial age. So one thing for citizens to realize, if they want to know why Iraq was so, uh, the situation was so horrendous and tragic, is because a lot of the roots of what's happening now and what's been happening since 2003 has to do with George Bush's policies and the barbaric bombardment 
of Iraq for over a month and a half when I was in Baghdad, where it wasn't military installations only, 114 bridges, uh, water treatment plants, everything. And I am someone who grew up, yes, under dictatorship, but I am of the generation that drank very clean, portable water and lived a relatively good life. And all of that, in a way, began to crumble and decline after 1991. And more importantly also, uh, at the time, the U.S. through the U.N. imposed sanctions on Iraq to force Iraq to leave Kuwait. And when the sanctions did not work, of course, there was invasion, the, the so-called liberation of Kuwait. But these sanctions were maintained under Bush Sr. and then Clinton, which we know now killed one million civilians, a lot of children. So basically, the destruction of the of the modern state of Iraq, its institutions, its facilities, uh, the social fabric, the destruction of the Iraqi middle class and forcing three million Iraqis throughout the 90s to leave, all of that is part of uh, Bush's legacy. Hmm. I want to back up quite a bit. In the 1950s, General Abdul Karim Qasim mm -hmm. was ruling Iraq. He, like Mossadegh in Iran, was moving to nationalize oil in Iraq. He was, in the context of the Cold War, open to doing business with many countries in the world, including the Soviet Union, and pushed through some fairly progressive, certainly by today's standards, if you look at the Saudis and others, progressive social platforms. Mm -hmm. The CIA in the early 1950s began cultivating the Ba'ath Party mm -hmm. and Saddam Hussein. And ultimately, when Abdul Karim Qasim was overthrown, the CIA gave lists of people that were quote unquote suspected communists to assassination rings, including Ba'ath Party assassination rings. <laughs> government which promises a modification of Qasim's bitterly anti-British, anti-American, and anti-Nasser policies has been emptying the jails of political prisoners and replacing them with communists, rounded up since the revolution. What the final impact will be, nobody can say. Talk about the takeover by Saddam Hussein of Iraq and the Ba'ath Party, the U.S. support, and the politics of that moment in Iraqi history. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm happy you, you brought this up because until today, the Abdul Karim Qasim retains um, a huge popularity amongst Iraqis because of his, as you said, his progressive record. Uh, and it was really stunning by the standards of the time and because he was a nationalist. And, you know, one of the leaders of the Ba'ath later in his memoirs said, quote, we came on an American train. So everyone knew. I believe he said we came on a CIA train. Well, <laughs> yeah, but it's the same, same difference, yes, but yes, yes, I mean, it's an amazing so admission. Everyone knows that. And, you know, speaking of the 91 war, it's, it's only until Saddam Hussein crossed the red line and invaded Kuwait because he misread the signs or he was fooled by the United States ambassador, April Gillespie, saying in her meeting with him, we have no position on Arab-Arab disputes. Well, did you say we have no opinion on the Arab-Arab conflicts like your border disagreement with Kuwait? Yes, that was one part of my sentence. The other part of my sentence was, but we insist that you settle your, uh, your disputes with Kuwait non-violently. And he told me he would do so. That's when Saddam Hussein was transformed from the secular ally, not only for the United States, for, for France and other so-called Western liberal democracies, and he became the enemy. But before that, it's 
throughout there was definite support throughout and especially during the the Iran Iraq war in the 1980s but for me I grew up uh, as a youngster in Baghdad and I still remember when Saddam Hussein was the vice president but everyone knew that he was the most powerful person in a way because he had consolidated a lot of power under under his control especially in terms of intelligence and internal security and in 1979 he pushed aside Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr who had been president and took full power. And then, so very quickly, of course, um, the tensions with, with Iran started and and Saddam waged the, the Iran-Iraq war. And one of the images that always stays with me, and I make sure to, to write about it, to remind fellow citizens because they are so forgetful, is that I remember uh, watching the evening news in Baghdad and and hearing as a teenager also that, you know, President Reagan sending uh, congratulatory telegrams to Saddam Hussein and then seeing Donald Rumsfeld come as the emissary. And it was known uh, that the United States was supporting the, the Iraqi regime uh, with intelligence to make sure, of course, that the war lasts as long as possible. Uh, I think Henry Kissinger said that the longer that war lasts, the better. So when we come to 2002, I myself, but many Iraqis, uh, we would not take Donald Rumsfeld seriously when he speaks of the liberty and well-being of other people. And Donald Rumsfeld multiple times visited Baghdad to meet with Saddam Hussein over the course of 83 and, and 1984. Donald Rumsfeld brought a gift from Ronald Reagan, and it was a pair of golden cowboy spurs that were uh -huh. given to uh, Saddam Hussein. But I, I bring that up not to just tell you the bit of trivia about the cowboy spurs, but to remind people that when Saddam was at his most brutal was when he had the full support of the United exactly. States in the 1980s, lifting him off the list of state sponsors of terrorism, selling him weapons, sending US generals to Baghdad to help them plot their bombing runs in Iran. Part of this story, it's the George H.W. Bush eulogy on Iraq, is basically Kuwait was invaded, Bush put together a coalition of willing nations, including many Arab nations, uh, and liberated Kuwait, and then wisely made the decision to keep Saddam in power. But in fact, that's not the beginning of the George H.W. Bush Iraq story. The Iran-Iraq war and supporting the brutal dictatorship of Saddam during that period prior to the Gulf War. The brutality against the Kurds and the use of chemical weapons, I mean, those chemical weapons, we forget also, were supplied by the United States. And also about the issue of invading Kuwait. And of course, I and many Iraqis were against the invasion of Kuwait. But how the Saudi Arabian ruling family was convinced to allow U.S. troops to come into Saudi Arabia was that Dick Cheney, flew into Saudi Arabia and showed the king satellite images that supposedly showed that Iraqi troops were in an offensive position. But that is not true and not correct. And, and Dick Cheney at the time was the defense secretary. Yes, was the defense secretary. Not that I was for the invasion of Kuwait, but Saddam was not going to invade the entire Arabian Peninsula. But of course, this was handed on a platter of gold because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, this was really American fantasy, imperial fantasy come true, is to have military, permanent military bases in the Arabian Peninsula. Your entire life that you lived in Iraq, Saddam Hussein was in power, either as vice president or as president. What was it like growing up in Iraq? 
I mean, it was very difficult growing up under a dictatorship, of course. So one, you know, had to acclimate and there was a, a climate of, of fear in a way because one's, one's life could easily end and one could go into prison very easily. That's why the first novel that I wrote in Arabic and then co-translated into English is about what it means to be a young university student living under a dictatorship and in a war. And it was really terrible and horrific. But I want to point to the fact that the problem in a lot of discourse is the conflation of, of course, the Saddam regime and the Iraqi state and Iraqi society. Of course, many of us hated Saddam Hussein and wanted him to be to be removed or to be weakened. But it was really tragic and horrific. Secretary Cheney and from Chairman Powell, uh, they had a very good visit out there to the Gulf area, talking to our commanders. Uh, the, uh, I'm very satisfied, having heard their briefing, with the progress in the war. The air campaign has been very, very effective, and uh, it will continue for a while. I remember members of my family who were older, who had you know, built the country themselves as engineers to see the country being really destroyed in a month and a half. I think it's really important for American citizens and others to realize what George Bush and what their country did, dictatorship or not, because the dictatorship issue is used to justify wars. Mm -hmm. Politically, economically, culturally, what was Iraq like prior to the 91 Gulf War? First of all, the first TV station in the Middle East was in Iraq. The first female minister in any cabinet was in Iraq at the time of Abdul Karim Qasim. The most progressive set of laws uh, that have to do with women's rights were set in Iraq in 1960 and 61. And in terms of land reform, in terms of social justice, also there was a very powerful communist party movement, very progressive. Beginning in the 50s also, for example, the F, uh, flourishing cultural efflorescence in Iraq, the movement of new poetry, new free verse started out in Iraq, which changed the way Arabic poetry had been written. So by 1991, of course, we had dictatorship. We had a lot of problems because of the long war with Iran, but there was a very solid bureaucracy. There is a very good educational system that, for example, I went to college in, in Baghdad, and my professors had been graduates of Stanford and Chicago and Harvard and elsewhere. And most importantly, there was an excellent healthcare system that was free. So I and many others who had certain health problems could get excellent health care for the equivalent of 25 cents back then. Now, all of that, in addition to the clean water that I discussed, excellent facilities and infrastructure, all of that was destroyed in 1991. And it was destroyed because of the policies of the United States and George Bush. That cannot be erased, no matter what CNN or the others uh, say, this reality, this is in the public record. So George Bush, the father, contributed largely to policies that ended up destroying or beginning the destruction of the modern state of Iraq. Hmm. So it is basically transforming Iraq from a functioning largely secular society into a society that is experiencing slow death. Well, and before Desert Storm was launched, the Iraqi dinar, one Iraqi dinar was worth three American dollars. Yes. Uh, Iraq was importing labor. It had uh, both the Tigris and Euphrates River. 
It was a, a um, agriculturally very diverse and productive country. Mm-hmm. And over the course of less than two months, it was bombed back to a totally different era. And all of the institutions you're describing, all of that day-to-day culture was just obliterated basically overnight when yes. Bush launched this war. I mean, and I, I remember at the time I was in Baghdad and we would go in the during the day and survey the damage. So there are... You know, post offices were bombed. And what did that have to do with Kuwait? And it was such an extensive bombing. Even I remember it, sometimes it's absurd. There is a, a small office somewhere on the outskirts of Baghdad where retired uh, military officers go to receive their pensions. That was bombed too. And so I, you know, we, we say it so much, we, we don't think of it. Think of the arrogance and the barbarism in the phrase itself. We'll bomb them back to the pre-industrial age. I mean, and then uh, I mean, I was lucky when I came to the U.S. to to study under Hanna Batato at Georgetown. He's probably written one of the best books on Iraq. And in 1993, he said, based on all of the statistics and what we're talking about, that what is happening in Iraq is genocide. And we already knew in the early 90s, uh, early on, that these also the effects of the bombing and the sanctions were not really hurting the regime that much. Actually, the regime. And the ruling elite benefited from it, but it was hurting the very same people that was supposed to, whose lives it was supposed to make better. And people forget now the many, you know, officials from the UN who who resigned because they couldn't be part of this type of policy. On March 31st, Hans von Sponeck, a German national with a more than 30-year career at the UN, resigned his post as the UN humanitarian coordinator in Iraq in protest of the sanctions. He's the person in charge of the UN's oil for food program in Iraq. Von Sponek's resignation comes just more than a year after the resignation of Dennis Halliday from that same post for the same reasons. And this was under Bill Clinton primarily. It started under Bush. But the real economic killing fields of Iraq with real victims, many of them women and children, were these economic sanctions. Yes. I mean, I remember a relative of mine who, as I said, was watching all the bombing and he was really, of course, devastated because this is a young... As a young engineer, he helped to build a lot of these bridges and all of these buildings. But he was saying basically that what the war and the bombing does not did not destroy, the sanctions will destroy slowly. And there is a very excellent book by Joy Gordon about what the sanctions against Iraq mean and our responsibility and the, the country's responsibility in, in perpetrating that genocide. In, when, I, when we went to Baghdad with, with a collective to make a documentary about Baghdad, I interviewed, of course, tens of people. And one woman told me, you know, an Iraqi woman, a mother told me, I will forgive the United States for the bombing, but I will not forgive them for the sanctions. Because with the bombing, you can hide in the shelter, you can try to survive two, three hours. But what do you do with the sanctions when you cannot get the milk to feed your child. On the eve of the 2003 invasion occupation, I went in Baghdad to visit a clinic which had the only functioning x-ray machine capable of detecting certain kinds of cancer. The line was days long. People would camp out waiting to have an x-ray there because they were not able to import the parts necessary to properly maintain their x-ray machine. Bleach was not allowed. When you would go into Iraqi hospitals under the sanctions, Petrol was being used as a disinfectant. The hospital smelled like a mixture of blood, death, and gasoline. When George H.W. Bush authorized and carried out the decimation of Iraqi civil society, then followed up by the economic sanctions, it was like a death sentence on a death sentence for the Iraqi people. Definitely. And we should also mention the use of depleted uranium. 
because also in 1991, the United States heavily used depleted uranium in the munitions that it used, and that caused an explosion in the rates of leukemia, Congenital, congenital birth defects. Birth yeah. defects. And today, I mean, I published an article in Arabic about well, the legacy of George Bush, and I got a lot of responses from people who live in Basra in southern Iraq today and are still suffering from the consequences. And of course, even the veterans suffered from that. You know, the so-called Gulf War syndrome is just another way of not talking about it. The Amaraya shelter in Baghdad mm -hmm. was a bomb shelter. And on, I believe it was in February of 1991, mm -hmm. That shelter was bombed, and more than 400 people uh, were were killed inside. Yes. Talk talk about that particular strike. I mean, that's one of the most salient examples again of the, of course, the 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 barbarism of that war, war and the the disregard for Iraqi lives, basically for civilian lives, because they knew that that was a civilian shelter, really. Of course, the claim was that there were some uh, Ba'ath Party officials who were going there. But I mean, of course, they go during the daylight to check on their families. But it was uh, a place where the families who lived in that neighborhood would, of course, go to seek shelter. And hundreds of people were burned to death inside that shelter. And the United States never, of course, apologized. For many Iraqis, that is one eternal reminder of what the United States did to Iraq and to Iraqi civilians. During this discussion, you've mentioned April Gillespie's name. And of course, um, April Gillespie was the senior U.S. official who met with Saddam Hussein and they discussed the issue of Kuwait. Saddam's government's position was that the Kuwaitis were diagonally drilling from Kuwaiti territory into Iraq and illicitly stealing Iraqi oil to sell on mm -hmm. the international market. But there was a brewing conflict between Kuwait and Iraq at the Arab League, and the United States was aware of it. What do we know about the meeting that happened between April Gillespie, who was representing the Bush White House at the time, and Saddam Hussein before the yeah. Gulf War starts. I mean, there were a lot of tensions already, and I think it's important to remember, of course, Saddam Hussein and the regime is responsible primarily, but I think the United States, in a way, choreographed the situation and also emboldened the Kuwaitis to not be diplomatic and not give in. So the Iraqi regime had billions and billions of dollars of debt because of the war, and the, the Kuwaitis were not willing to forgive those debts in addition to the problems because of oil prices. But it's crucial to remember that, as you said, April Gillespie in her meeting with Saddam Hussein, when the issue of the tensions with Kuwait coming up, she told him that the United States has no opinion or no position on Arab-Arab disputes. And we know now from the memoirs of his secretary that after that meeting, Saddam Hussein asked for the transcript and he highlighted that sentence. And obviously, of course, the United States knows how to play to the fantasies and megalomania of these dictators, as it often does. And so he took that to mean that he would invading Kuwait would not be necessarily a big problem. Right, and well, and why, why wouldn't he think that also? Because he, he was so used to having American military exactly. planners in Baghdad helping him pick out targets to bomb another one of his neighbors, Iran. Exactly. And and after even after the invasion and in a lot of the interviews with the American media, he said, you know, we're not going to drink the oil. We're going to sell it. 
which means that he was slightly surprised. And in the first speech he gave a few hours after the beginning of the bombing on the 17th of January, I remember because we were fleeing our house to go to what we were told was a shelter, but actually was just the basement of a restaurant. But I heard him on the radio saying basically that they have betrayed us. And I think he also thought, unfortunately, his miscalculations that the United States will, will go and have its bases in, in the Arabian Peninsula, but they will not wage war against him. So um, the United States is also complicit in playing basically a lot of these dictators, including Saddam Hussein himself. And I want to go back to, to what happened after the, the land war and the bombing that what the United States did is it helped Saddam crush the uprising in Iraq. And more importantly, the United States decimated all those poor Iraqis who were forced and drafted into the army. And it kept the Republican guards, the elite units, because it had defanged Saddam regionally in a way, had destroyed his army. Iraq would have really no influence in regional affairs anymore, but wanted really to keep the regime intact. And that is very important to remember so that fellow citizens, hopefully, and I hope it never happens again, erase this notion or demystify this notion that somehow the United States supports any expressions of democracy and is not consistently supportive of dictators, no matter how brutal and barbaric they are to their own populations. As we wrap up this specific discussion, Sinan, I wanted to ask you about current day Iraq and how much of the situation we're witnessing there now can be traced back to the period when George H.W. Bush was vice president and ultimately president during the Iran-Iraq war and then launching the Gulf War. The United States was supportive of Saddam Hussein until the 2nd of August 1990 when he invaded Kuwait. That's when they and the Brits were at pains to find some Iraqi opposition folks uh, and of course, they went and brought the mostly unsavory characters and basically created this so-called Iraqi opposition, figures who most of whom had no constituency inside Iraq and most of whom were very sectarian, were either based in Tehran and Iran or had contacts with Saudi intelligence or Syrian intelligence. And then those folks are the ones who were brought in 2003 to form the core of the new regime. And then, you know, you have the so-called pundits and experts being really shocked that this new uh, ruling elite is sectarian and it's pro-Iran. I mean, that's where you brought them from. They had no constituency inside Iraq. Most of them were really, really corrupt. So George Bush Sr., this will be on him as long as I'm alive. And this is the, the actual record. Uh, so he is primarily responsible for a lot of the damage and the horror that Iraqis lived through and continue to live through until today. Sinan Antoun, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Sinan Antoun is a celebrated Iraqi poet, scholar, and novelist. He's an associate professor at New York University. He was born and raised in Baghdad. To end today's show, we asked Sinan to perform one of his poems. It's called To an Iraqi Infant. Written in the mid-1990s, Sanan Antoun's poem is about the impact of economic sanctions on Iraqi civilians imposed by George H.W. Bush after his 1991 Gulf War. Do you know that your mother's nipples are dry bones, that her breasts are bursting with depleted uranium? Do you know that the womb's window overlooks a confiscated land? 
Do you know that your tomorrow has no tomorrow and that your blood is the ink of new maps? Do you know that your mother is weaving the slowness of her moments into an elegy and she is already mourning you? Don't be shy. Your funeral is over. The tears are dry and everyone's gone. Come forward. It's only a short way. Don't be late. Your grave is looking at its watch. Don't be afraid. We'll arrange your bones whichever way you want and leave your skull like a flower on top. Come forward. Your many friends await. And there are more every day. Your ghosts will play together. Iraqi poet, author, and scholar, Sinan Antoun. Thanks for listening in. This is Roman sitting in for Global Val for Women's Magazine. And I was playing a podcast from The Intercept, and that was George H.W. Bush, 1924 to 2018, American War Criminal, to provide another perspective that's not covered at all in mainstream media since the since the death of George H.W. Bush. If you're interested in, li- in listening to the full podcast, you can check out The Intercept. Dot com, as well as the Weekly Review, which is a show performance magazine. And you can listen to today's episode if you go to mutinyradio.fm. Check out the archives for December 7th, 2018. I played this, as well as another podcast from The Intercept, as well as went over some news from today. Uh, Women's Magazine and Common Thread Collective will be back next week, so please do stay tuned. I hope everyone's having a great week. And we at Mutiny Radio sure love the support, so if you're able to come by whenever you can. Uh, It's great to have some folks here. Have a great week, everybody.
may have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline, but on the Che Guevara Highway, filling up with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over the luxury's disappointment, so he walks over and he's trying to sympathise with her. But he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner. In the Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell the first hurdle In the cheese pavilion the only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer and someone asking questions and basking in the light at the 15 fame-filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics he asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment and my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the right leap forward Jumbo sales are organised Pamphlets have been posted Even after closing time There's still parties to be hosted You can be active With the activists or sleeping With the sleepers While you're waiting For the great leap forward Oh, one leap forward Two leaps back Will politics get me to sack Waiting for the great
able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nubs. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the court from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Beverly Hillbillies and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on search for tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Hall, women liberationists and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key nor sung by Glenn Campbell. Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or the Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Sacred ground. Mm -hmm. 